Welcome to the Eyes on Retina podcast series by Boeinger Ingelheim. Vision impairment and blindness caused by retinal disease can have a profound and devastating impact on the lives of those affected, their family, and society as a whole. 2.2 billion people worldwide have vision impairment or blindness, of which at least 1 billion could have been prevented. Globally, the prevalence rates of retinal diseases are expected to increase over the next 10 years, primarily due to the aging populations and the global diabetes epidemic. In this podcast series, we hear from a range of ophthalmology experts involved in the care for people living with retinal diseases such as wet age-related macular degeneration, geographic atrophy, and diabetic retinopathy, as well as people living with these conditions. Hello, my name is Dr. Peter Kaiser. I am the Cheney Family Endowed Chair in Ophthalmology Research at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine and a retina specialist. Today, I'll be hosting this episode of Eyes on Retina, a look into wet age-related macular degeneration. Age-related macular degeneration, or AMD for short, is the leading cause of legal blindness worldwide, affecting approximately 196 million people. The number is unfortunately going to increase to roughly 288 million by the year 2040. Now, as the name suggests, AMD is an eye disease that occurs as we get more mature is more likely to affect people over the age of 60. It happens when a central portion of the retina, called the macula, becomes damaged. The retina is like film in a camera, it's what you actually see with, whereas the macula is the central part that is responsible for reading, being able to see people to drive, etc. There are two main types of age-related macular degeneration, the dry and wet forms. The dry form is more common, but usually does not lead to permanent vision loss. It is the wet form that accounts for most of the visual disability, and that's what we'll focus on in this podcast. But before we delve too deeply into this fascinating topic, I'd like to pause and introduce today's guest. I'm joined today by Jane Shore Meisner. She is a retired reporter and editor who has lived with wet age-related macular degeneration now for 10 years following a bleed in her right eye. Jane, I look forward to hearing more about your experiences of living with this disease and the challenges you have overcome. Thank you, Professor Kaiser. This is a very important topic to me, of course, and I'm eager to have a discussion with you about it. Perfect. So in order to allow our listeners to get to know us a little better, I have a question that I think we can both answer. Now, vision is a sense we are most acutely aware of, but the sense of smell seems to be our least present in our conscious mind. So what is your favorite smell and why? <laughs> I have a lot of uh, favorite smells. I like the scent of all flowers uh, in my flower garden, but I also like aromas coming from the kitchen, um, turkey roasting or cookies baking. And it's interesting to me that I've heard it said that when one sense diminishes, the others become more acute. And I don't know whether that's accurate or not, but I kind of believe in it because my husband is totally blind and he has a very keen sense of smell. He can tell when someone enters the room because everyone has their own personal scent. And he also knows every time that I've sneaked a piece of chocolate because he can smell it across the room. 
Well, we'll get into uh, your story in a moment, but I agree. Smell really is one of those senses that evokes really strong memories. And, and for me, the smell of pine needles always makes me think of Christmas morning and opening gifts with the children. So it's a very warm and pleasant memory. So even if I'm out in the woods and I smell some pine needles, it brings me back to my childhood uh, with Christmas morning. So now let's move to our topic for this podcast. So Jane, you already sort of alluded to your story, which is a very interesting one, but could you really share with our listeners your journey to the diagnosis with wet macular degeneration? Well, yes, sure. Um, I did mention that my husband is blind. He has retinitis pigmentosa, which is another retina disease. Um, and he was diagnosed when he was 13 and he's gradually lost all his vision and now he's totally blind. So over the years, I have prayed to be more understanding of, of what it must be like for him with his vision loss. And <laughs> I guess be careful what you pray for because about 10 years ago, then I did suffer a hemorrhage in my right eye and the blood blocked the vision in that eye for five months until I was able to have surgery and they, they cleaned the blood out and I could see again. Unfortunately, later there were complications that led to the onset of wet macular degeneration that I deal with now. So for our listeners, when you say you had a hemorrhage, what did you experience? Was this a painful thing? Did it, did it happen slowly? Really, how did this come upon you? Uh, there was no pain whatsoever. I had been uh, working outside on a Saturday afternoon. I came in, was getting cleaned up, and was going to wash my face, and I reached for the soap dish, and I had one eye closed, and it was all black over there. I couldn't see the soap dish. Something was missing, and I realized something was wrong, and told my husband what well, he wanted me to call the eye doctor right that minute, but it was Saturday afternoon. And, and so I said, well, I'll just wait till Monday morning. And uh, uh, Monday morning, I called my optometrist and described what was going on and said, maybe I should swing by. He said, you get here right now. And I went in and, and he diagnosed uh, the hemorrhage. But no, there was no pain there. I just happened to notice things were missing on the one side. At, at that point, it was just a portion of the vision, but then over the, the next couple of weeks, it blocked all the vision in that right eye. Yeah, and I think it's important for our listeners to understand that macular degeneration is totally painless. There, there's absolutely no pain involved in this disease. And, and sort of how you noticed a sudden change, that's usually what occurs when you develop wet macular degeneration, because basically a new blood vessel is growing into the eye and this new blood vessel bleeds and leaks fluid, which causes either distortion of vision or in your case with a bleed, a very sudden loss of that central vision. So for you, once you were diagnosed with this, what did that do for your psyche? You'd seen your husband lose vision. You know, how did you think when you first figured out that you had this problem? I think it would be fair to say I was scared. I'd read some about macular degeneration, and I, I knew that there wasn't a cure for it. And I had kind of thought when I first started dealing with my problem that I would have my treatments and they would fix it and I would go on my way. But when 
the doctor started mentioning wet AMD, I knew that this was something serious and that it wasn't going to be fixable. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to go blind. We're both going to be blind. This, what am I going to do? And it, that hasn't happened. It, it hasn't been as bad as I feared. Yeah. And I think that's also important. In the past, macular degeneration certainly caused um, very high levels of decreased vision, and, and oftentimes these were permanent. But nowadays, we have treatments for wet macular degeneration that, in general, uh, allows us to maintain our vision, uh, if not even improve vision from diagnosis. Now, I think it's important for our listeners to understand what this treatment is. So why don't you describe to our listeners, you know, how has your macular degeneration been treated? Um, it's been about 10 years for me, and I go to a retina specialist about every seven to eight weeks, and he checks the progression of the disease through exams, and there's lots of high-tech equipment that does scans of the eye. I can tell what's going on in there, but then I get each time an injection to help stabilize the situation. The first time that they told me I was going to have an injection, I said, um, in the arm. And they said, no, not in the arm, in your eye. And I couldn't believe it. I, I said, I can't do this. I'm going to faint. And they said, no, you'll be fine. And so we did it. And last month, uh, we celebrated injection number 50. That's over 10 years. And apparently these injections are common treatment and effective treatment. And my doctor once told me that he did maybe 25 injections a day. So I'm not alone in this. Well, I think this idea of getting an injection in the eye would scare anybody. I, I can't imagine someone actually saying to their doctor, oh, please, please do that to me. Um, <laughs> now that you've had a few what would you tell someone who's first been diagnosed with this what to expect? For me, I've compared um, the injection process to going to the dentist because uh, first they put uh, a numbing drop uh, in my eye, just like at the dentist. They first numb up your gum a, a little bit if you're going to have a, a filling, and then they give a shot of um I guess some anesthetic, just like at the dentist. And you wait for that to take effect. And so the actual shot with the medication is very quick and you don't feel a thing. I try to schedule my appointments at the end of the day so I can just go home and relax because it is, sometimes it burns a little bit or I'm emotionally exhausted <laughs> from the experience. It's kind of routine now. I don't look forward to it, but it's kind of routine now. Well, and I think that's important because as scary as it sounds, it's actually done in a way that the eye is completely numb. And, and I like to tell my patients it's truly not a torture session. Uh, in fact, uh, as you get more and more of them, as you have had, Jane, it's not something you like, but certainly something that you understand why you're doing it. But I want to move back to the time when you had your first diagnosis of wet macular degeneration, you know, you had the hemorrhage first, but then you said later you developed additional symptoms. What were some of those symptoms that you had later on from the wet macular degeneration? I don't know if this is what most people experience or not, but 
After I had the surgery that cleaned out the blood from my eye, they told me that I probably would have a cataract form as a result of that. So about a year after the surgery, I started having a little gray patch in my vision. I would close my other eye and look up at a white wall, and I would be able to see this gray circle. And I thought, oh, this must be the cataract that they were talking about. So I went to the eye doctor, and he said, no, there's no cataract there. But they did some other testing, another scan or so forth, and that's when they found the complications. There was additional leakage of fluid that had formed a little blister on the retina, and that was what was leading to the macular degeneration. And I have often thought back to that and thought, what if I had gone to the doctor sooner? What if I hadn't been confused about what it looked like? I thought it was a, the formation of a cataract, but actually it was something else. It was symptoms of, of the macular degeneration. Well, I think it's difficult, right? So when I have a patient who has macular degeneration, I ask them to pick something around their house uh, that they can look at every day. And, it, and it, it doesn't have to be a small thing. It could be a pretty big thing. Uh, but the key thing is to look at it with one eye at a time. And just make sure that the lines look pretty straight, that there's no gaps or spots in it, that the object itself isn't distorted or faded. You know, because the signs of early macular degeneration can be very subtle. And if you're not looking for it, you have another eye that can oftentimes protect you from noticing it. So one of the very common stories I have with my patients is that they come in when their second eye develops problems because they actually didn't even notice that their first eye had problems. So it's very important to really separate the two eyes out. It sounds obvious when you talk about it, but in reality, you don't think to cover one eye uh, to double check it. As you mentioned, when you reach for the soap, you only noticed that there was a problem when you closed your one eye. Had you not closed your eyes, you may not have noticed it. Yeah, that's right. To me, that's one of the things that's really important because when it comes to wet macular degeneration, we have excellent treatments nowadays. As you mentioned, they are injections into the eye. And we have many different drugs now that are available, um, some more potent than others. And we're working on new treatments in the future. and we'll, We can discuss that later. But one of the things I want to ask you is about how has this affected, you know, your life with your husband? Uh, obviously, the two of you are, are helping each other, but with him having a visual disability and you having macular degeneration, how has that changed your life? Well, I think there are a lot of little things. Now, I can still see my left eye is okay. It hasn't been affected and at least yet. So I can still see, but as you mentioned the part of the eye that you use for reading and focusing on things uh, is not what it should be. And I don't know, last month I made a, a $200 math error in my checking account because I read a number wrong. I've also noticed in trying to read recipes, I've never been a good cook to begin with, but now I'm in greater danger of misreading a recipe and putting in a half a cup of onions instead of a quarter cup or really making little mistakes like that. I notice that I have trouble 
putting on makeup. It's, it's a challenge, uh, to put on eyeliner and have a fear of going out in public with a big smudge of, of eyeshadow across my face that I didn't notice. Then there are bigger challenges too. I actually retired earlier than I had planned from my work as a writer and editor, uh, partly because I felt so unsure of my vision. And that it's not good to be a proofreader and have missing patches of vision in a, a line of type. And I had thought, I'd always dreamed of spending my retirement reading books, sitting on the sun porch reading books. And, and I have several bookshelves of books I was going to read. But now the reading isn't as much fun anymore. It's laborious for me to read because there'll be missing spots of type. But probably the greatest challenge for us is transportation, driving. My husband had to give up his driver's license a number of years ago, so I'm the driver. It often takes me a while to focus on on street signs, and you don't have the luxury of taking time uh, when you're driving. You have to make quick decisions. So I have started avoiding the freeway where the traffic is heavier and faster, and I take side streets, and I try to avoid driving in unfamiliar areas and, and driving at night. So a lot of little ways that we have been affected by the vision impairment. And I think this is, your story is one that I've heard uh, many times with my patients. And I think it's important to understand what you were implying, which is, yeah, your vision has been affected and it has certainly affected your life in very dramatic ways, including, you know, retiring early. But when it comes to macular degeneration with these treatments, we're actually able to maintain the vision. In the past, we would oftentimes lose vision to the point where you would not be able to read. You, you would have no chance of being able to drive, but you are still able to drive and you're still able to read. And certainly there are aspects of your life that has to be changed. For instance, I'm sure uh, with your computer screen, you've gotten a large monitor. You've increased the font size on your monitor to allow you to read. And these are all great things. And I, and I tell this to my patients that, you know, some patients will get large clocks. You know, there are aspects of your life that you can change to allow you to continue your life. What I want to really impart on the listeners is it's not a death sentence. This is not something where in the past, you, you know, the chance of going blind was incredibly high. Uh, and in the past, we just chalked it up to getting old. And that's not the case. You know, just because you're getting more mature does not mean you're going to get macular degeneration. Just because you have macular degeneration doesn't mean you're going to go blind. We have incredible treatments. We have treatments coming down the uh, pipeline to be even better. The other thing I think is important, uh, is anybody in your family have macular degeneration, any of your parents or brothers, sisters, anything like that? No, not that I am aware of. Um, in fact, I, I've always been nearsighted, and I'm the only one in the family who was nearsighted. Um, so I don't know. Is it hereditary? Is there a, a hereditary factor? Yeah, absolutely. So, so macular degeneration certainly has both changeable factors and non-changeable factors. And some of the non-changeable factors are obviously age. Females are more likely to develop this than males. 
but there's a very strong genetic component to this. So, so it does run in families and that's where the environment comes in. So the environment is also very important. So smoking is a known risk factor, sedentary lifestyle, high lipid levels. Uh, these are all things that increase your risk and are modifiable. So if you have a parent or a family member, with macular degeneration, first of all, you want to never smoke. That would be the worst possible thing you could do for macular degeneration. But also, when you when you hit 50, 55 years of age and you have a history of it in your family, you really need to go to your eye doctor to be evaluated because oftentimes we can see early signs of the dry form of macular degeneration on clinical exam. Now, at that point, you're perfectly fine. Your vision is probably perfect. But the reason it's important to be diagnosed early is because there are some treatments to prevent the progression to the wet form, which is the form you have. And one of those things is actually it's as easy as taking vitamins and eating healthy, kind of like what your mom told you when you were growing up, you know, eat healthy, carrots, green leafy vegetables, uh, stay away from the fried foods and, and the meats and things like that. Did your doctor ask you to change your diet or to take any vitamins when he made this diagnosis? He didn't mention the diet, but he did suggest that I take a high potent vitamin and I take that twice a day. That has been shown to help slow down the progression. Is that, are you familiar with that? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a very large study done by the National Eye Institute called the Age Related Eye Disease Study or AREDS for short. And in that study, and there are actually two of them, AREDS 1 and AREDS 2, uh, very high dose vitamins, way higher than you could get in a regular diet uh, or with regular multivitamins, slowed the progression to the bad form, wet macular degeneration. Uh, and so it's very important to be taken as, and in your case, it's very important to protect your fellow eye. The eye that already has wet macular degeneration, the vitamins really won't do much. This is to protect your fellow eye from developing it because you do have a risk in your other eye. So if you have wet macular degeneration in one eye, you have a higher risk than the general population in your fellow eye. And you want to monitor that very closely. Now, the good news is because you are seeing your doctor so frequently, they're obviously taking images of your fellow eye at every visit. So patients who are diagnosed that way actually have wonderful outcomes because, as I mentioned, treating early is really what leads to good visual outcomes. And as you described, of 10 years of shots, I mean, just think about that 10 years ago. You would never have thought that you'd still be doing this. Um, but, you know, thankfully, these treatments work, but it requires a lot of injections. And, and that's the area we're looking at for the future is the idea of having the same outcomes but dramatically reducing the number of treatments. In fact, we're working on some gene therapy products that may actually require only one injection, and then the treatment lasts a lifetime. So we are working on things to make sure that we have better treatments in the future. So Jane, many of my patients with macular degeneration oftentimes need uh, family or friends to help them uh, either around the house or even to bring them to their appointments. How has your diagnosis impacted your family? 
Well, because my husband is blind, he is naturally very understanding and encouraging of my situation. And our children are adults now, um, and they have grown up and become accustomed to allow for our limitations. Now my son and his family live two hours away, so they know if they want us to visit, they need to plan it to allow time for us to drive home, for me to drive home before it gets dark or else stay overnight. I mean, that's just always a consideration. And they have um, my little granddaughter who's four years old. And once we were there and she showed me her uh, toy plastic sword. And this was kind of like a Star Wars lightsaber sword or something like that. She said, Grandpa has a sword too. And I didn't understand what she was talking about. But then my son explained that she was referring to my husband's white cane. And he said that she would walk around the house tapping with her sword like Grandpa does. So she's aware. And I think that uh, this will help her grow up with compassion and empathy for visually impaired people, which makes me think of another example. Um, we were eating at a restaurant, and the waitress brought my husband's meal and set it down and said, okay, your meat is at 6 o'clock on your plate, and your potatoes are at 12 o'clock, and your broccoli is at 3 o'clock. And I was so impressed, and I said, how do you know to do that? And she said, well, her grandfather was blind, and that's how they communicated. And so she got a, a good tip uh, that night. You know, even before the pandemic, we found ourselves staying at home more. We don't go to movies. We don't go to the theater to see a play anymore. Um, my husband avoids large social events like wedding receptions or large parties because it's just so hard to navigate. And I do have a concern about becoming isolated and uh, and boring and, and uh, I don't know, that concerns me. So I make a conscious effort to keep in touch with uh, family and friends. And, and I think that that's important that I have to take the responsibility. You cannot tell uh, with either my husband or myself, you to look at us, you can't tell that we have a vision impairment. So other people don't realize that we have trouble seeing. And this might include cashiers who who want me to um, sign the the charge slip and I have to tell them I can't see the amount can you help me out or I might need to tell others to go ahead of me on a staircase because I want to take my time and go slow so I'm going to have to take some responsibility informing others taking care of my own uh, social life and making sure that I don't become a victim to this condition. I totally agree. And how wonderful that waitress was. I mean, if everyone could really have that type of empathy for someone with uh, visual impairment, what a, what a wonderful place this world would be. You know, to me, one of the things that you said really strikes a nerve because I had a patient of mine who came in once. She had a very large button 
on her uh, blouse uh, and, and a button read, I have a visual impairment. I'm not trying to ignore you. And, and exactly what you said is, is so true. You'll, you'll be with friends that you've known for years and you may not recognize them, right? Because of the visual impairment. And they may think, oh, oh, you know, Jane's being rude to me. She's not even coming over to say hi. And that's not the case, right? Yeah. And so yeah. to me, I thought this button really encapsulates one of the issues with macular degeneration, which outwardly, you look perfectly normal. There's nothing wrong outwardly. It's just your vision is slightly impaired. Uh, and having this button to show, hey, you know, come say hi to me because I may not recognize you. I may not see you. It, it was a really a wonderful button. I, I really enjoyed that. And I told a patient that she should patent the idea and, <laughs> and, and make and sell them, sell them online. It, it was, it was yeah. such, such a great idea. I, I would buy one. I definitely would. Jane, you've been living with this diagnosis now for almost 10 years, so I'm sure you've come up with some tips and advice that you can give our listeners with macular degeneration. Could you share some of those with us? Uh, well, yes. My my number one tip would be to um, uh, get treatment immediately. Don't if you have any questions about your vision at all, uh, get to the doctor immediately. But also, since my diagnosis and also with my husband's condition, uh, we've discovered lots of resources that are, are very helpful. And uh, in our home, <laughs> we have a, a talking thermostat, we have talking bathroom scales, talking clocks, talking caller ID, and even um, a talking tape measure. And we have little raised dots that we can stick on the microwave keypad so my husband can figure out uh, the numbers there. And you can even get a, a little device to place on the edge of a glass or a cup that beeps when you've poured enough liquid into the, the glass. Some of these things I think would be great for people with perfect eyesight as well. They're just handy little um, gizmos that my husband has a reader in which he can place a piece of mail and it will read the document aloud to him. And he has a device that identifies the denominations of paper money. And he has a special wallet with four bill compartments in it so he can keep his currency separate. While he still had some vision left, he used an enhancer which enlarged the text on his computer screen uh, or projected documents onto a larger screen. And then there are organizations that are, are very helpful as well. In our state of Iowa, there's an excellent resource called the Iowa Department for the Blind, and I think there are similar organizations in other states. And they offer job training and skill development and everything from cooking to navigating uh, city streets with a white cane to uh, woodworking. And by the way, my husband, who is totally blind, has a whole workshop full of power tools and does woodworking and builds things. The Iowa Department for the Blind also offers in-home services and, and support groups. They have provided my husband with an audio reader, and he listens to audiobooks every evening. There are organizations such as Prevent Blindness, whose mission is to preserve eyesight through education and funding research. So in our day and age, there are lots of tools out there to um, help people live with visual impairments. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The fact of the matter is technology is really helping 
sort of get around some of the limitations and, and really make your lives better. I know there's, for instance, apps for the smartphones that you could bring with you to the grocery store or pretty much anywhere you want. And you just kind of point the camera at a can or a label or whatever, and it'll read it to you. Uh, and these applications are free and are really amazing. The technology really has come a long way to help my patients uh, with macular degeneration and other visual problems. Professor Kaiser, I'm wondering about the diagnosis. You say that uh, treatment is more successful the earlier this can be uh, caught, but how do you go about diagnosing it? Do you ever miss early diagnosis? That's a good question. So, you know, the only way for us to diagnose a patient with macro generation is actually to see the patient. So oftentimes a patient will call me on a phone or, or leave a message by email to say, I have X, Y, or Z symptoms. And unfortunately, we can't make this diagnosis over the phone. And, and in the age of the pandemic, we can't make it with telehealth. You know, we really need to see you. Uh, so the first thing we'll do is is to dilate your pupils. This allows us to get a really good view of the retina, in particular the macula, and we'll look inside the eye. Sometimes just by looking, we can make the diagnosis. But in general, we also add some imaging modalities. So we'll do a scan of the eye to look at the eye and cross-section to see if the wet macular degeneration is present on that image. We may use a dye that we inject into a peripheral blood vessel and then take pictures of the eye to see if the blood vessels leaking in the retina. You know, between those, we can usually make the diagnosis. So the diagnosis of macular degeneration is, it's not straightforward, but with the imaging tests, with the clinical exam through a dilated pupil, in general, uh, we can make the diagnosis pretty conclusively. I'm hopeful uh, from what I hear from you about the future treatments and, and slowing the progression or retaining the vision. I feel encouraged that there will be more progress in this. I guess I want to be sure to make the point that both my husband and I are happy in our lives. We have these vision impairments, but as you mentioned, uh, wet AMD is not a terminal illness. It, it won't kill you like cancer or, or some other diagnosis, but it forces you to make some adjustments um, and perhaps be more appreciative of, of the small blessings in your life. And finding contentment while living with vision loss, I think, is quite possible. I couldn't agree more. And those are wonderful words of encouragement. And I do encourage uh, our patients. It really is something that we have good treatments for now, uh, hopefully better treatments in the future. For many patients, the diagnosis of macular degeneration is frightening. They truly believe that they will go blind. I've had patients come in telling me they've sold their car. Fortunately, most patients with the diagnosis of macular degeneration actually have the dry form and do not lose vision. And even if they have the wet form, sort of like you, if it's caught early, patients can keep good vision with appropriate treatment. That part's very important, with appropriate treatment. It's important to continue these treatments, important to listen to your eye doctor, because in general, we can treat this very well. But let's take a worst-case scenario where they lose their central vision. The patients will never go completely blind. You'll always have that peripheral vision. You'll always be able to get around, and, and that's an important differentiator from other retina diseases. 
But the earlier the diagnosis, the better it is in terms of long-term prognosis. So if you do think you have macular degeneration or a change in vision, please go see your eye care professional. And I really want to thank you, Jane, for joining me today to educate our listeners about age-related macular degeneration. Well, thank you, Professor Kaiser, for allowing me to participate in the discussion. And I have learned a lot, too. So thank you very much. Wonderful. You've been listening to the Eyes on Retina podcast series by Boeinger Ingelheim on a look into wet age-related macular degeneration where I, Professor Kaiser, was joined by Jane Shore Meisner. Don't forget to click subscribe or follow to listen to our next episode.